0: Hi, my name's Paul Kennedy, and I'm a sport reporter for the ABC, and when I'm not listening to the ABC, I listen to Radio Karam. Tune in and enjoy. You're listening to Rowan Pratt Method, where myself and a unique guest discuss topics that I'm interested in and that you might find relevant to your life. On today's episode, we have Yuri Sharmus, who is a psychotherapist and specializes in MDMA and psilocybin therapy. Welcome to the show, Yuri very happy to have you here man so would love to hear a little bit about your story I personally know a bit and actually reading it when you wrote it out for me sounded very very I want to say inspirational so let's dig into it.
1: Sure where would you like to start?
0: From the beginning man let's go right back <laughs> <laughs> from uh, just the things that you explained uh, in the document that you sent me about your experience about how maybe you got into your profession and what sort of got you to this point.
1: Sure I guess start with come into Australia as a refugee. Nowhere near as intense as some of the other refugees, but still we fled our home. And I think growing up in a foreign environment with young parents who, you know, came over with a level of anxiety, it definitely gets passed on to your kids. So there was a deep kind of seeded belief that my worth was tied in with my achievements. And I think for a lot of people that sort of ties into how we view ourselves and it can develop a lot of toxic shame. So I think for me, toxic shame was a large part of my life and needing to be the best, constantly achieving, never really accepting who I was or my struggles in getting here. And that kind of created a person that had a, a relatively frail ego, frail sense of self, and, yeah, a lot of mental health issues. I think I developed anxiety from quite young on because I wasn't taught how to deal with my emotions. I wasn't taught that emotions are good and positive and need to be processed. And, yeah, a lot of challenges, a lot of struggles. And I think naturally for people like myself, becoming a therapist, not necessarily to help people, but to help myself, was a logical kind of step forward. Of course, I'm talking in hindsight. Mm. As you're doing it, those aren't your ambition. <laughs> it's
0: uh, interesting that a lot of people that end up in that helping industry have got a similar background. Absolutely,
1: yeah. So, yeah, that's how I kind of ended up in the field. I think the psychedelic component, you know, when you're not having a good time in life and you find drugs and you find that drugs can either help you escape or be help you al- alleviate some of your suffering, becoming a therapist and getting into the psychedelic space became a very tidy thing from an early age for me. And um, helping people in a similar way was a no-brainer as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess I come into this field not from textbooks primarily, but from a lot of life experience, from a lot of mistakes and a lot of getting myself back up and trying to become a better person.
0: That's excellent. So can you explain what toxic shame means?
1: In the simplest way, I mean, shame is an emotion. It's an important emotion, but toxic in the sense that you develop a negative self-image mm. often it, you know the narrative around toxic shame can be i don't feel good enough i feel unloved i feel inadequate in any word like that that kind of shapes your identity where it's looked from a negative lens mm. yeah
0: i love that you said that emotions can pretty much be celebrated and they're actually a good thing can you just elaborate on that because As you said, most people aren't taught from an early age how to process, express, deal with emotions and manage them. People look to numb them, escape from them, deny they even exist and then potentially regulate them just so they can get things done and carry on with daily tasks, particularly a lot of high achievers that are striving like what you described. Why are they a good thing, even the negative ones? Because I always discuss with people the fact that negative emotions are a part of the deal and if you didn't experience them, it would probably be considered a disorder as well. So can you explain as to why they're a good thing and why maybe they should be embraced?
1: I think, firstly, there's no such thing as a negative emotion, and I think it's a huge misconception. Emotion, you know, in the simplest form, is something that informs you about your internal or external environment. It's a fundamental aspect of um, interpreting the world. And for most of us, because we're taught not to deal with our emotions, we rely primarily on our intellect, and it's... It's half the deal. It's missing. That's much better. Yeah. Hmm. It's missing a lot of the um, information around the world, about the world. So, yeah. Is that the answer to your question? I think so.
0: Yeah, I think it is. But how can people get in touch with them? Because obviously we're going to talk about therapies and things and some of the interventions that you've been using. But in terms of men in particular that associate showing emotions and vulnerability as a sign of weakness? Mm-hmm. And maybe they've had negative experiences in the past. How can they get around that? Obviously, a safe space with a therapist would be a good place to start.
1: The basic answer is just getting in touch with your body. Most of us live neck up and our goal is to avoid everything. So whether it's you doing your own work to connect to your body, whether it's breath, whether it's just being present. Um, yeah, I think... In the simplest form, the therapy is designed to bring you back into a relation with your body. Mm. Your body holds all the information you need. Your body holds all the emotions that you need. And as long as there's a connection between mind and body, you can come back into your emotional sort of sense.
0: Yeah. You actually shared a bit of a story with me before about how your experience with navigating your way through emotions led to
1: a physical illness with your MS. Do you mind sharing that story? Sure. And again, you know, this isn't medical textbook stuff. This is my own personal experience. But I grew up in, in a world where I didn't want to feel anything unless it was positive. And I think what happens when you do that is you create emotional blockages in your body. Think of it as a volcano. Volcano eventually is going to erupt. And a lot of the ways that we live is we're constantly stockpiling this emotional energy in our body. Eventually what happens is the body screams that it's overloaded. It needs to release it. And one of the ways it does that can be through creating autoimmune conditions, in my perspective. So your body starts to eat itself in a desperate plea to release emotional energy that you've got stored there. Mm. So I think for me, 20 years of not dealing with my stuff and continuously treating my body with disrespect and pushing it further and further caused then a rupture. And it wasn't until that I started to prioritize my body, prioritize my mental health, that I started to release a lot of these emotional blockages. And I felt like, for me, that was the most important thing for the MS to start to disappear.
0: Wow. So can you run us through that journey? I imagine it would be different for everyone, but just based on your personal experience, how old were you when you were diagnosed with
1: MS? 22 from memory.
0: Okay. And how you don't suffer from the symptoms now?
1: I don't I haven't had any symptoms for five to seven years now. Yeah. I stopped taking the medication that they were giving me because I felt the medication was a band-aid for a problem they couldn't explain properly. Yeah. And the medication made things worse. Um, I stopped taking bodybuilding supplements. I was taking creatine phosphate, which, you know, was helping me get bigger but was ultimately putting more pressure on my body. Mm. And between psychedelics and psychotherapy and emotional attunement, I started releasing the shame that I felt, any other negative emotions I held in my body, and I felt very slowly the symptoms started to, to disappear. Wow. And that was seven years ago you started this process? No, I started this process, let's say, I got diagnosed at 22. I think at about 27 when my first sort of significant relationship ended. Yeah. And I realized that I was living life on autopilot. Mm. You know, it was the first kind of steps into spirituality, into self-awareness. And then it's been a 10-plus year kind of ride to get to this point where there's there's a self-acceptance. And, yeah, the symptoms sort of dissipated within about, five years of me becoming awake. Wow.
0: It's a very unique experience. Autoimmune diseases are popping up more often. There's so many people with neurological issues that, you know, they're coming up every day. I'm meeting so many people. Absolutely. And since COVID, it's actually increased. And people, some people argue it's because of the jabs. Other people might say because of the intense amount of stress and isolation and things we actually had during that time.
1: Mm.
0: A lot of, uh, in your industry, has mental health issues sort of become more of a
1: popular topic? Have you seen more people seeking help since COVID? I'd say so. I think finally mental health is becoming an integral part of everyday life. So it's like the same thing if you've got back pain, you'll go to a chiropractor. Mm. People are seeing therapists not as quacks or crazy house kind of solutions, but an integral kind of maintenance of your everyday life. So people are stepping out and, and owning that they're, they're not feeling well.
0: Yeah, it's mm. great that people are seeking help. There is still a lot of stigma around reaching out, and obviously companies or organizations like beyond blue they're trying to break that stigma down with awareness raising but you know awareness raising only goes so far there comes a point where we actually have to do the work
1: mm.
0: how can we encourage people to seek someone out when they're at that point like let's say you had a, a friend or someone that you thought would benefit from psychotherapy from someone perhaps like yourself how could you steer them in the right direction without them putting up a wall
1: How do you steer them? I mean, I guess encouraging, you know, the old stigma that vulnerability is weakness. Yeah. That really needs to be challenged. Yeah. I think it's something we all suffer from to some degree, but maybe by being a role model, by volunteering your own mental health issues Mm -hmm. and your own challenges and leading by example, showing people that, hey, I'm actually much more of a man by owning my pain and by working through it. Yeah, I completely agree. I
0: know even from my personal experience, I was the first person to hold space for other people in terms of vulnerability. And I would talk about it, and I would be able to articulate it. And I go, yep, you know, you have to embrace being vulnerable. But I very rarely did it. And it Mm. was a very confronting experience to wrap my head around. I think also, as you said, about role modelling, something that I've been talking about a lot lately is people having to share their failures, their insecurities, their fears, some of these things that pop up, limiting beliefs maybe, so they're actually a human being instead Mm. of just the highlight reel that you see on social media all the time. Yeah.
1: Mm. I was definitely the kind of person that posted too much for a while. Yeah. I think when I realised how inauthentically I was living, you know, you often go into that next phase where you're so inspired to live differently, you start telling the world about it. Yeah. So for me, yeah, like I went on the roller coaster of oversharing and I look back on it and there's a little bit of a cringe, but ultimately <laughs> <laughs> I think ultimately um, it was still it still modeled to other people that hey, I don't have to live in the closet emotionally.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So baby steps, how can someone from your perspective, this can be either from a therapeutic background or just from your personal experience, how can someone step out of their comfort zone in terms of embracing vulnerability?
1: I mean, you're surrounded by people all the time, turn to the person next to you and just say, I'm not okay. Yeah. That's enough. Yeah. Say I'm suffering, say I want more out of life. I think that's a pretty good starting step.
0: Yeah, that's great. I think everyone can pretty much relate to that. In fact, mm. I don't think of anyone that really could confidently say that those words that you just say wouldn't resonate with them. Yeah. Yeah, that's great.
1: You know, the problem with vulnerability, and this is something I'm pretty passionate about, is we think vulnerability is about being met in a certain kind of way when mm. we step out. And again, I'm I'm no preacher in this because I make this mistake all the time, but true vulnerability, I've been told, is stepping out on a ledge and jumping over the edge but not expecting to be caught on the other side. Yeah. So I think that real discomfort of like revealing yourself, being there naked and not being received a certain kind of way, if you can aim for that, you can be truly vulnerable.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I actually had someone talking about something similar recently There are many people out there that express that they are vulnerable and they're embracing vulnerability, but they have a a planned story that they've shared a million times. They understand what the response is going to be like. They've planned it all out. It's not really being vulnerable anymore. It's just a part of their story that they're just happy to share, Mm. like their favourite football team. But actually revealing a part of yourself where you're like, I'm going to be judged here. Like people are going to have an opinion about Mm. this.
1: That is a bit of a fear element. That's a real vulnerability, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. Like even this conversation now, you know, like we had an idea where we're going to go, then we lost the script. And now we're sitting here freeballing and it is a vulnerable experience because you could take it anywhere you want and I'm at your mercy with it.
0: (laughs) Well, you know what? All I'm going to do is I I appreciate that, but also you can steer it in any direction at any given point. So I'm just going to pick up on little things you say but in terms of the psychedelic therapy Mm. i really want to dig into this we'll come back to vulnerability in a moment but would you like to start talking about psilocybin or
1: mdma first or how you got into each what all do you think personally i don't think it makes a difference which one we talk about i think the concept behind psychedelic therapy is essentially we do good thorough therapy Mm to get you into a relationship with your emotions, to get you into a relationship with whatever's causing you distress in your life. We bring you into a relationship with that pain and then we use the psychedelic component to allow you to meet that pain in a much deeper level and hopefully metabolize it through your body. Mm. Whether you're using the medium of MDMA or psilocybin, in a lot of cases can be interchanged in my perspective. I know legally they've kind of branded it as psilocybin for depression Mm and mdma for ptsd okay and i understand that in certain regards like if there's a a really really intense trauma and it's horrific sometimes psilocybin can be a little bit too abrupt to access it and process it and mdma offers a a really unconditionally loved hand-holding avenue to go towards it Mm. in those situations i totally agree that mdma is a better option but for most of us who are working with, let's say, everyday depression and anxiety, it's just the need to bring you into a deeper relationship with emotions that's most important. Mm. And both substances can accomplish that equally as well.
0: I find it very interesting because we were talking before we went live how you're using these substances to help people experience emotions more fully and in the hope to release them through that process. So many people use drugs recreationally or through addiction as an escape, to mm-hmm. escape emotions and potentially feel more positive ones. And they probably consider that as a bad trip if they're going to be experiencing something
1: like that. Mm-hmm. Can you explain the difference and how maybe therapy is involved with that? Totally. So <clears throat> in my line of work, a bad trip happens when a particular emotional experience comes to the surface and you don't want to deal with it. Mm. So then you try and run away from it. And what we know about the psychedelic state is with the defenses down, there's often nowhere to run. Wow. So the negative emotion chases you throughout the trip, eventually catches you and hits you over the head. And that's what we experience as a bad trip because your expectations for that moment was like, I want to feel positivity. I want to feel good. Mm. Instead, I'm feeling all these horrible things. And then the external environment starts to mimic your internal experience and we have that bad trip. Mm. So if we talk about it from a therapeutic standpoint, We want you to have a bad trip in the sense that we want you to come into a relationship with the negative emotions. The only difference is you've spent the prep work dealing with these emotions, getting into a deeper relationship with them. So if and when they do pop up, you embrace them. You lean into it. You spend two, three, four, five minutes with the emotion and then it's metabolized through your body and it's at the other side.
0: Wow. That's a really interesting process. And you hit the nail on the head in terms of An undesirable, we won't call them negative, but an undesirable emotion when they're forced to face with something the person's potentially running away from. And Mm. I see this all the time. People are constantly running. Even if it's just sitting in that discomfort of being still, they have to be, no, I have to be doing some breath work at this particular time or Mm. scrolling through the phone or listening to music at some point. They have to have some sort of stimulation to avoid that unpleasant sensation of what might come up.
1: Mm. 100%. And if you reflect that in the society that we live in, it's all geared around avoidance. You know, when you go to the gym, the average person goes to the gym with headphones on, looking at their phone, looking at their screen. They finish the workout. They don't even remember they were at the gym in the first place. Now extrapolate that to our lives. That's pretty much what, you know, what society is pushing us to do. Go at 100Ks an hour, then come home and sleep. Where's your downtime? Where's your capacity to self-reflect, to allow any emotional events that have happened throughout the day to be processed? Mm. And here, there lies a problem.
0: Processing emotions is a very unique thing that I haven't really considered. I've looked at holding space for emotions Mm -hmm. and expressing them. But in terms of processing them, I don't think a lot of people do that. Obviously, looking at things like journaling and trying to get in touch with certain things that come up and getting your thoughts out on paper is one way. But as you said, people are just chalking out their
1: day. There is no downtime. What is your definition of downtime? A capacity to fully present with yourself yeah not just in your mind but in your body. I'll give you an example. So if you and I have an interaction here right now and something let's say something you say makes me feel negative, for the purpose of this conversation, I will block out that negative emotion so that we can continue our interaction. Mm. Now if I when I leave here, if I sit in my car for 10 minutes, I reconnect to the interaction we had, I interact how the comment that you made made me feel a certain kind of way. And I relive the emotional experience, I'm essentially reconnecting to the process and allowing the emotion to be processed.
0: Okay. So how does it dissipate after you process it? How does it dissipate? Like well, how does it, how do you move on from it? Because obviously you've gone you're reconnecting back to the experience that you said, look, I can't address this right now. I need I have things to do, which I think is a very relevant mm. tool because we don't want people falling apart all the time. because Shit needs to be done. You totally. know, if you're people that don't have jobs, businesses, etc. So,
1: how does what does that process actually achieve? You know, if you eat a meal and then you digest the meal, it comes out the other side. It's a successful endeavor, for qualify argument's sake. Yeah. Emotion is exactly the same. It's energy that's generated in your body. If you attend to the energy and metabolize it, it's out and it's transformed into something else. If you don't attend to the energy, it stores in your body. It gets stuck. Right. So your question is, how does it process? Well, by attending to it and allowing yourself to feel the emotion fully, Mm. you're digesting and metabolizing that emotional experience, and it's gone.
0: I've heard people describe similar things in relation to processing grief, and I imagine it it probably applies to all emotions.
1: Yeah, I mean, grief is just a complex set of emotions, absolutely. You know, grief isn't going to be a one-hour meditation in the car to deal with. It's a long-standing process, but daily interactions usually invoke small emotional charges. yeah, and our job is to not collect them so that eventually that um, volcano erupts, and we have all sorts of negativity in our body. Is there like a
0: time frame as to when you can process this particular emotion? Would you try and do it mm-hmm. as close to the event as
1: possible, or can you save it to the end of the day? You can, absolutely. I mean, when we talk about trauma, people are dealing with things that have happened 10, 20 years ago. Yeah. And they're dealing with it now. Me personally, I have a process of at the end of every day, there's 20 minutes before I go to sleep. I sit in my bed, throw the dune over my head, and I allow anything or any bullshit that's happened during the day that hasn't been dealt with to rise. Yeah. And I just give a present. I can sometimes cry, I can sometimes just wiggle it around, or sometimes just feel it. And then once the emotion's out of my body, I'm usually ready for bed and I go to sleep.
0: That's re- – I've never actually heard anyone describe that, but I have known usually partners throughout my life that at different points mm. they would you know allow themselves to have that cry like or release that emotion, I mean, even if it was a happy cry, but they just get that heightened experience and they're like, I'm good to go now mm. and they can continue. I guess it's the same as – I'm using this instance as an example because it comes to mind where men get angry and they might punch a punching bag or they get mad and they express that. They voice their concerns. Now I'm okay now and they continue. So would you say that's a healthy method to go through?
1: The anger part? Yeah. Absolutely. The thing about anger though, in my experience, 99 times out of 100, it's a secondary emotional response. Mm. So if you're angry, there's probably someone in there that's hurt first. You don't recognize or acknowledge the hurt but anger is so much more tolerable to you, so you naturally go to the anger. So yes, if you're angry, deal with the anger, but then try and use the anger as a gateway to what the emotion is underneath and try bring that emotion to the surface and process that as well.
0: People would definitely prefer to be angry than to acknowledge that they're actually hurt. Totally. When it comes to
1: emotions. Totally. But then what you've done is the hurt is blocked in your body. Mm. And the next time you got hurt, you've got twice as much hurt that you're reacting to. Yeah. And that's why often we get so angry is because the smallest thing brings up all of that unprocessed hurt. So then we naturally become so much more angry as a way to deal with it.
0: Yeah, interesting. That definitely makes sense. So in terms of releasing these emotions in a therapeutic setting, some people, as you just said, maybe they've had anger from the hurt and then they haven't released it and then they've got another piece of hurt. Now it's double the amount of hurt and this goes on throughout their life. Can you go back to the original hurt like, You know, cut the head off the snake and make the whole body drop and
1: deal Mm. with the whole spectrum? Or is it just you have to deal with each individual moment? No, in my experience, you don't have to deal with each individual moment. I think of it in the sense that emotions have energy centers in the body and you can deal with anger as an emotion. And if you can get it all out, you're probably getting a lot of life experiences out at the same time. Not all, but a lot. So when we do therapy and let's say we're dealing with toxic shame, We don't have to go through every single time in your life you felt ashamed. We're dealing with a concept, with a part of you that holds that shame and we try and release it. So you tap into the feeling, not the memory? We're tapped into, we often use the memory as a gateway into the feeling.
0: Yeah. Okay. And you'd imagine that that feeling would pretty much be the same at each of those memories.
1: Yeah. Because you've got to think of a trigger is not related to the here and now. A trigger is a younger and older part of you. Let's say you say something that upsets me, it's probably not upsetting me right now, but it's probably a memory of something that upset me similarly when I was younger and maybe 50 times since, and that's what I'm reacting to. So as long as you're connecting to the feeling, letting go of the feeling, this isolated incident is nowhere near as big as it might feel in the moment for you. Wow. So this is related to somatic therapy, correct? I mean, I I think it's related in some part to somatic therapy, mostly emotion-focused therapy. Emotion-focused therapy. Can you explain the difference or just
0: a bit of a brief overlay of somatic therapy and how it relates to the body?
1: I'm absolutely not trained in somatic therapy. <laughs> How'd so I go with the emotional one then? Sure. So you want to know how it relates to the body?
0: Yeah. Like this is an understanding because people think of emotions and they generally tend, I know it's feelings, but people think of like random words such as sad, glad, etc. but about how
1: it relates to the body itself. I can tell you, and again, this isn't textbook stuff, but this is my life experience on a the topic. There's a number of core emotions that affect most of us. And I think um, as, a, as clients come in, yeah, there's a, there's a general theme around the topic. The emotion that people don't deal with is fear. Mm. When we're afraid, we don't like how that feels. And we often try to avoid that feeling. So it's trapped in our body. Another emotion, as we've talked about, is shame. Mm. Nobody likes the way shame feels and nobody wants to feel shame when it comes up. Embarrassment is another key emotion on my list. Again, when we're embarrassed, the last thing we want to do is sit there and feel embarrassed. We try to get out of the situation. Mm. Guilt is another big one as well. Yeah. I find for me, those ones are the core emotions that I work with. Um, And then in terms of secondary emotions, emotions that we use to avoid dealing with primary emotions is usually sadness and anger.
0: Okay, so sadness is another one like anger that stems from
1: these other emotions that you listed. You can feel sadness genuinely. Something sad happens, you feel sad. But I find some people feel sadness as a way to cope with another core emotion.
0: I think it's interesting that people are very limited with their emotional vocabulary as well because Mm. everyone's happy to say, I'm good or sad or mad. Like those are very basic things. Yeah, As you said, they're sort of masking other emotions that are really Mm. what's going on. It's very interesting. So curious here, a lot of people talk about exposure therapy and I know with CBT, a lot of people say, you know, sit in that experience and don't just jump to an intervention straight away. If someone's exposed, let's say they have a fear because we spoke about fear, and they're scared of a of heights or something like that. and They continue to expose themselves to it and they're constantly getting exposed to it, but they're not processing the emotion letting it go. Well, that just cause more problems. I think so. Yeah. Like that's yeah. what I'm the conclusion that I'm coming to based on what you've described.
1: Hmm. I think if you're exposing yourself to something you're afraid of rather than doing the action, stay with the fear. Yeah. Process the fear you've sorted the problem out, then the actual action is infinitely less scary.
0: So how can they stay with that particular emotion? I'm just thinking of people that have come to me in the past that say they're anxious about being anxious and nothing bad happens from the anxiety. Mm. They're safe at home in their house, mm. but they're so anxious and they can't calm themselves down. And you know, we get to, they're like, what can I do to stop feeling this unpleasant sensation? So they, they look to breath work. They look to all these things, which is fine, as you said, if you have to do a podcast or something like that. Mm. But- how can they sort of
1: move through that? I think you're using the language you're using is kind of correct in that. If if you ha- let's use an example of fear of heights, right? Yeah. You you're kind of you walk up the mountain, you're standing there. Nine times out of 10, what you're trying to do is push that fear aside so that you can stand on that edge and be comfortable. Yeah. But if instead all you're doing is allowing yourself to be petrified and really processing that emotional experience, then the fear starts to dissipate. Yeah. Does that kind of make
0: sense? So like the emotion would reach a peak and then it like you'd go through that unpleasant sensation and yep. you have to ride that wave. Yep. That's exactly it's how exactly it works. It's exactly like a craving. It's a, it's a same much. sort of concept. Yeah. yeah.
1: And with a craving, you've got to sit and feel a craving. Yeah. And then it'll just dissipate and then you're good. Wow. Yeah.
0: So, that emotional peak. I've had this conversation with people about a lot of people that are doers and I'm a big advocate for doing, and probably similar to what you were ta- uh, describing about striving and success and everything else as well. Trying not to associate it with identity, but still, I just active, like to do things and mm. accomplish things, just mm. for personal enjoyment. But people say, you know, well, I sit still. I've had a few people say, for example, that one woman in particular—I won't say her name—but she would get to a point where she was always good, everything always happy, and then she'd be sitting in a space and she would cry and. Then she's like, I don't want to do that. So then she'd get up and she'd scroll through her phone or she'd watch a TV or something. I'm mm-hmm. like, well, have you figured, like, see what comes up? Is it attached to a memory or is there something like mm-hmm. that or like that experience? But people get that little uncomfortableness and they run away. Yeah. So would you encourage people to do that where safely in their own homes to be able to ride that emotion out, let it get, reach the peak and then just drop off?
1: Yeah. It, it literally takes a minute or two. So the work that we do in therapy is, you know, preparing people for a trip, for example, let them into the emotion. And... They allow themselves to be overwhelmed with the emotion and then they're surprised when 45 seconds later they're feeling good again. Whereas if they're sitting there and they're trying to hold that emotional experience at bay, they're in a constant state of distress. They're not relaxed and they're essentially not processing the emotion and not present in the room dealing with whatever's going on. So the example of, of that woman you're talking about where she's pretending underneath the surface, she's a fucking mess. Yeah. And then eventually she's overwhelmed and she gets up and walks away or scrolls in her phone. If she just gave herself that moment to fall apart, it doesn't have to be this big grand falling apart, you know, screaming and choking, but just tuning into the emotional experience, recognizing that she's not feeling strong or that she's feeling afraid, feeling those feelings, then she'll get up and perform infinitely well. Wow. Wow. How can
0: people do that without falling into the trap of negative self-talk, where they're just constantly having that cycle in their head? Like it does re- reach a peak with the feeling and then it will dissipate in a short period of time? Like in a
1: minute or two. Really? The negative self-talk, in my experience, is the body's or defense mechanism's way to try and get away from the emotional experience. Once the thoughts that's coming, you're out of your body and your head's just trying to cope with the situation.
0: Yeah, okay. So they're trying to intellectualize it and use logic, which is what we're sort of trained yeah, to Yeah, it's avoidance it's an (laughs) avoidance yeah 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 that that is very interesting i've never heard anyone put it like that but it makes perfect sense even based on my own personal experience Mm. so in terms of an emotion how could you people are so scared of feeling them what's a safe way for someone to tip their toe in the water and experience it? because it sounds like a lot of people are fighting a rip They're so badly, don't want to experience the emotion. It's like thoughts, thoughts, breathing, breathing, whatever it is, drugs, alcohol, whatever it may be, to just avoid that. And they're just fighting against (coughs) the current the whole time. How can they just surrender to it and go with it? Obviously, psychedelic therapy is the way that you're using, but is there ways people could do it just
1: without? Well, psychedelic therapy is almost like if you're training for karate, the psychedelic therapy is like you've worked your way up and then you do it then at the end like a black belt kind of thing. Yeah. In a normal sense, work with. First of all, you can work with positive emotions. I was someone that didn't allow myself to feel joy because mm. I felt that I didn't deserve to feel joy. So for me, one of the founding steps was just allowing to sit there and feel happy without getting up on my own and getting distracted, and just allowing positive emotions to penetrate through my body without running away from it. For others. You know, as I said, sadness and anger, sadness or anger is usually acceptable to them. Mm. Work with the emotions that you know well. For men, often we have this idea that if you're angry, you've got to do something about it, right? As you've already shared. Have you ever tried just sitting there and feeling angry? Just allowing yourself to get furious? Do that for a minute. I promise you you're going to feel better. But that's toxic masculinity now. You're not allowed to get angry as a male. Well, no, you're not, you're, not, you're not allowed to express anger as a male. No,
0: I, don't, I think you should be in, entitled, or well, not entitled, you should be able to express it in a positive way or in a, in a way that you need to express it as long as it's not hurting anyone else. I think that would be the thing. When you say express it, do you mean verbally, physically? I don't think, well, punching a punching bag would be a okay. way of uh, physically expressing it instead of, you, I wouldn't encourage anyone to hit anyone else. Sure.
1: So for me, when I say express emotions, I mean sit here and feel angry. Yeah. That's me expressing my anger. So not do anything about it. Just you don't have to. Yeah. Yeah. Your emotion just needs to be metabolized. So just sit there and seethe for five minutes, but really allow yourself to get pissed off. The peak will hit and then it'll just drop off and you'll feel
0: 100%. And what is this technique called? Emotional, what was that? I mean, therapy? I just call
1: it emotional focusing. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. This is very interesting. Mm. Thoroughly enjoying this conversation. Glad you were here, Yuri. wasn't our intended plan, but but I'm liking where it's going (laughs) anyway. So let's go back to the MDMA therapy or psilocybin. (sighs) Who should be doing it and who shouldn't be doing it?
1: My exclusion criteria is borderline personality disorder, bipolar personality disorder. If you've had suicidal ideation in the last six months, And if you're not willing to get off antidepressants, benzos, or antipsychotics. Yeah. The reason for those is I personally don't know enough about borderline and bipolar to guarantee safe passage for someone. Suicidal ideation, by definition, psychedelic therapy destabilizes you. Mm -hmm. If you've got suicidal ideation, we can't risk destabilizing you beyond how you're feeling already yeah so we have to work you to a point where you're feeling grounded and stable using regular therapy before the psychedelic um, option is explored. What was the third one I said? Oh, the the drugs that you can't take. Yeah. Antidepressant meds, a lot of them work on the same pathways that psychedelics do. So essentially what we're trying to accomplish with psychedelic therapy is to get you to feel more. What we're trying to accomplish with antidepressant medication is we're trying to get you to feel less. Mm. forget the pharmacological in- incompatibility it's the exact opposite uh, in terms of goals yeah benzos like xanax um they stop the psychedelics from working and antipsychotics well by definition a psychedelic trip is a psychotic experience of sorts a mm. favorable one yeah and you're using a drug that's stopping that yeah okay mm.
0: yeah i can definitely see how that would have an impact Feelings are such an interesting topic and it's becoming more and more popular, but people are always looking at ways to manage them. That's the go to because people want people compliant so that they can go to work and do the things that need to be done. But you're actually and then obviously expression's a thing where people are talking about vulnerability. And they but again they're intellectualizing them, they're verbalizing what they're actually feeling, talking to someone about it, maybe getting a bit of connection in the process. Mm. But they're not actually allowing themselves to feel it mm. most of the time.
1: Totally. Yeah. I mean, as I said, vulnerability is often I want to feel these feelings, but I want to be held in a particular kind of way or else. It's an explosion <laughs> waiting to happen. Yeah,
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. So in terms of doing these substances in a therapeutic setting, we are not encouraging people to go out and ask their local around the corner in Frankston or something to mm. give them some substances and then go home in the garage and go through this experience themselves, mm. are we?
1: We're not. But we're also mindful of that's that's how most people get to this point. That's how I got to this point, you know, taking lots of substances to try and feel good and then having skeletons pop out of the closet and feelings that weren't so good come to the surface. So that can be really potent, but they can also be really dangerous in the sense if you're not ready to meet what's, what wants to come up, you can have a really negative experience mm. and you can potentially re-traumatize yourself in some way. Yeah. And that's why psychedelic therapy is a really crafted sort of method where we're teaching you about emotions, we're teaching you how to navigate the psychedelic space, and then we're setting the set in the setting as well, so the environment is a really positive environment for you to have the trip. And then that's what sort of allows the process to be so much more gentle and positive.
0: Yeah. So how would you steer someone in the right direction to... Get a therapeutic benefit from reliving an experience and feeling instead of getting re-traumatized. How do you navigate between the two?
1: There's a lot of really good modalities out there. One of them, I guess, one of the outlooks is titration. And titration essentially means that you're not exposing yourself fully to a traumatic experience. You're using little small steps like a door opening and door closing. That's why it's called titration. So you're kind of allowing yourself to feel the feeling and then when you've had enough, you pull back, you close the door, you reflect on it, you know, and as I said, with the dangers of psychedelics, that door can open, you don't know how to close it, and then you have a a really traumatic experience.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think I've witnessed people do that. (laughs) I've done it myself many times. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't sound ideal. But, well, in a controlled space, and if you're actually going to be able to let go of experiences that you're carrying with you every day, so many people out there that have got this emotional baggage, if you like, that is, it's affecting all their decisions. It's affecting their health. It's leading leading to things like autoimmune diseases that you've had with your personal experience. And I'm sure many of the other people out there, the same thing. And when we look at things like addictions, they're generally a coping strategy for people's mental health issues. So, Mm -hmm. I guess going through that experience of just feeling something to its fullest capacity and then allowing it to sort of settle, you can move on. Absolutely. I'm definitely going to be experimenting with this if I have any, I'm not going to call them negative, but any unpleasant emotions that pop up at a different point and mm. allow myself to experience it. How can you do it in such a short period of time? Can you guide me through it?
1: How to experience an emotion? Yeah, how you do I? You to do it right now?
0: Yeah, why not go? Ideally a positive
1: one. Okay.
0: Well, what are you feeling right now? I'm feeling pretty good. I'm feeling optimistic in the sense of uh, it's a piece of the puzzle. And I'm very fortunate that these conversations I get to have every week with people like yourself, the things that I'm interested in, they're always relevant to my
1: life and anyone that I'm working with. So feeling pretty blessed at the same time. Okay. I don't know how to guide you through. I mean, I guess if you're saying you're feeling blessed, are you allowing yourself to feel blessed right now? Yeah. Or are you just talking about it and it's kind of at a distance?
0: Well, if I can acknowledge, I guess you've asked me to verbalize how I'm feeling. But if I can acknowledge how I'm feeling, I'm feeling warm, like I'm feeling relaxed, like I feel a little bit of heat over my forehead, mm-hmm. but not in a negative way, like okay. I feel a little bit uplifted. Okay,
1: wonderful. So my, my suggestion would be to really lean into that experience, to notice where you feel warm as you've described in your body, to give permission for that warmth to move in your body any way it wants to. Sometimes you might even want it to expand and you can use certain breath exercises to allow that feeling to grow in your body. Yeah. Exactly the same with a negative emotion. So, if we sat here right now and I asked you, What's triggering to you? Yep. And we don't have to do this exercise. <laughs> yeah. But if I did, yeah. Right? And you told me a story of something that is triggering to you. Yeah. I could trigger you with that story and I could navigate the experience for you emotionally where you notice where the, tr- the impact of the trigger is in your body. You notice that you don't really want to go towards it, but I'm going to encourage you to, to go towards that emotional or, let's say, that tension in your body. Yeah. And then we'd let that tension grow. You know, like, for example, you close your eyes, you focus on that tension and use your breath to just pump more energy into that tension. To actually heighten the negative experience. Yeah, like we're kind of encouraging. We wouldn't do this with a really traumatic kind of thing, but let's say we're working with with a recent anger moment that you had. We're like, let that anger grow. That person said this nasty thing to you, just see how it's impacting you. Let it expand, let it grow, give it permission, be familiar with it. Don't go beyond your comfort level. And usually people will just allow that experience to peak. It'll go to a seven or nine out of ten. It'll stay there for 20 seconds and then they'll notice that it just starts to dissipate in some Really?
0: I, as I said, I find this fascinating. It's very similar to how someone should be handling cravings. Mm. It's very funny that people often say just let the anger go mm. and they expect someone to just stop being angry. And deny them the experience of yeah. feeling that feeling, and just move on with it. They sort of they didn't get to go through it. Yeah. But you're actually encouraging people to let it grow, but not to the point that you carry on throughout the world on a path of destruction. But you just reach that point, and then you then you can actually let
1: it go. Yeah, in a safe environment. If I said to you, you know, if we're driving, I said you let that anger grow, <laughs> yeah. and, you're, and your road race just kicks over. Yeah. Probably not the healthiest way. But if we're sitting here in a, in a safe environment, you let it grow, and then you'll let it go even quicker after that.
0: Yeah, and I think that's also something to discuss in terms of vulnerability as well. There is a time and a place to be vulnerable. It's you can't be. It can be all the time, but it might be unresourceful if you're leading a meeting or something else like that. 100%. There's a time and a place. And you need that safe space, whether it's with, you know, a loved one, a close friend, a therapist or someone like that, or mm. some sort of community group.
1: And they yeah. are out there. Yeah. And you need to learn. Like when I went on my journey of emotional awareness and growth, yeah, my vulnerability would peak up at every wrong moment and I would expect to get held and then it wouldn't and I'd get really fucking angry. Yeah. So there is a learning curve of like time and place. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's even more apparent in relationships. You know, you like, you want to come home and tell your partner something, but she might not be ready to hear you. So you blurt it out. She gets upset. You get upset. And the situation has a negative consequence because, you know, it wasn't a positive experience. But if you say, if you set a space, you go, hey, I need to have a chat, chat about this. She acknowledges you create a safe space. You have an open conversation. It's a positive experience. And you've learned from that experience, it's okay to be vulnerable. I will be held in a certain kind of way if I approach it correctly.
0: Yeah. Very interesting because I know relationships and communication is such a big issue, particularly for men but also women. And, you know, there's a whole concept of men being from Mars and women from Venus, et cetera, yep. and different yep. love languages, everything in between. But actually meeting together, it's, it's funny how a concept that a lot of people talk about is chunking up and getting to the point where they can't agree but someone will trigger the other person, the emotions come into it, and then it's not going to end well. It'll storm totally. off. and it mm-hmm. How can they steer through that? Is it choosing the time and sort of having a bit of pre-planning before that we're going to have this discussion
1: instead of just blurting something out in a heightened state? I mean, no one should do anything in a heightened state. My rule for it and this, you know, like I'm in a conscious relationship with another therapist. Yeah. And that might sound nice, but it's also got its all precarious (laughs) things that come with that as well. But essentially, the way that I've learned is if the other person is upset or triggered, think of it of you relating with a toddler. Yeah. When we're upset and when we're triggered... We're usually acting like a child and feeling like a child. And if we talk about internal family systems as a style of therapy, essentially the child part of you has come to the surface. So if a child is upset, you're not going to try and reason with a child. You're going to turn to the child, you're going to comfort him, him or her, and love him, him or her, right? The same thing you should do with someone who's upset. If two people are upset, well, you need to have a relationship where there's rules around that. Mm. For example, if we're both upset, I usually need to say some soothing words to my partner and then she needs to give me permission to get the fuck out the door <laughs> and spend some time outside. Yeah, And only once we're both calm and relaxed do we acknowledge that we're both upset and yeah. we try to give each other space to feel heard and understood. Yeah. Again, I'm preaching a beautiful model. In practice, it's much harder than that. But that's the idealised version of how it should be done from my perspective.
0: That makes perfect sense and it's very interesting Considering that these things do take time and anything worth doing does take time, there's no quick fixes, there's no silver bullets or anything like that. You can't wave a magic wand. And in terms of this feeling emotions and allowing them to reach that point that they can move on and you can progress moving forward. It's very hard for people to factor that in when we've got such busy lives. Mm-hmm. You know, People are waking up at the crack of dawn and then they're working a long hours. to come home, they've got to get kids ready and they go to bed. Just, mm-hmm. As you said, they're sprinting all the time. How could the average person factor this in? Would it be seeing a therapist once a fortnight or would, is like a set time at the end of the day that they process the things that have happened in the day in a journal or something like mm-hmm. that? Or is that still an escape, the journal?
1: I don't think the journal is an escape at all. I think it's a really fantastic way to be present with your emotions.
0: But separate to the actual experience of feeling the feelings
1: in your body? Sometimes people feel feelings in their body as they're journaling. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's good. I think, honestly, most people need to question why they're living their lives in the fifth gear. I was someone that had five projects on a go at any one time. Um, Sure, there was a pursuit to to prove to myself that I was better than I was. Um, And for me... The shift came when success wasn't defined by money but was defined by free time or quality time. Yeah. So there was this conscious sort of process of going, do I need to work this much? Do I need to earn this much? What's more important to me, quality time or money in the bank that I'm spending on stupid shit because I'm working so much anyway? Yeah. So I think that was a really fundamental thing. Like we don't need to be working five days a week, in my perspective. Like um, I totally appreciate that some people have – a lot of family commitments and they need to work to support their family. But if we're talking to, I don't know, the average middle class person, you're probably working more than you need to. Yeah. And then you're probably spending your weekends escaping from all the work that you're doing. Yeah. How much of your week are you actually in quality interactions with people that you care about? And if the answer's not enough, well, start making some changes around that. Yeah. And to do that, yeah, you can see a coach, you can see a therapist, you can just look in the mirror. And ask yourself some really honest questions. It's amazing to look at because we talked about connection earlier, whether it
0: be through a therapist, a loved one, social group, whatever it may be, that people connecting with themselves, connecting with those feelings, allowing themselves to experience them, connecting with people around them, as you said, having mm-hmm. connection on a regular basis. So many people, they don't experience it. They're scared of it. There's Maybe they have bad experiences or they just don't prioritize it. I think there was a Harvard study where they said at the end of life, like the things that you reflect on is really the relationships and the time that you spent with people. It's not the successes or the gold medals or anything that you won. And people forget that
1: i think that study even showed that it was the biggest predictor of longevity yeah was the number of quality relationships that you had in your life yeah
0: it's uh it's interesting because people can be surrounded by so many people but feel completely isolated and alone because they don't share the same values and potentially mm. they're wearing the mask and not embracing vulnerability and sharing some of the mm-hmm. deeper parts of themselves and there is that lack of connection mm-hmm. despite that interaction itself
1: yeah yeah i think a lot of Workplaces and society kind of breeds really shallow interactions. They don't want to know how you are. It's something I've heard I've heard, and I've experienced more with different cultures. Like, if, for example, Italians. Every time I deal with an Italian, you ask them how they are. They really tell you how they are. Yeah. They're just open and sharing about it. And then sometimes people are so taken aback by that because they just want to hear good. And not aware. Yeah. more.
0: yeah, <laughs> it is just that autopilot. I'm good, or I've been well, or whatever it is. I don't really dig into it. And then mm-hmm. the, the flip side of that is when someone is really struggling, and they pour their heart and soul out for all the things they're going through, but the other person really doesn't know how to deal with it. And then Nor it's, wants uh, to. Yeah. yeah, Nor wants to. It's like, okay, well, um, you handle that on your on your way, mate. Yeah, <laughs>
1: absolutely. Yeah. yeah,
0: you were mentioning about money as well. I think it's great to point out that you were in, sort of embrace or. Define success as the ability to have control over your time and you don't need to be having all these things ticked off the list all the time. So many people say they want money, but when they say they want money, they really want what they think money will give them. And mm. ideally that would be the freedom, but they sacrifice the freedom to get that money yep. working 80 hour a week to hit that point. Like yep. it's a, it's a bit of a trap.
1: Oh yeah. yeah. I'm getting a headache just thinking about
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> so what got you to the point that you decided to change because you came from one particular line of thinking and was this before or after you started working or studying as to be a therapist?
1: For me, studying and becoming a therapist was was a huge part of my spiritual evolution. So it happened throughout it. You know, I was someone who was so dissatisfied with who I was, which is unique in the sense that it gave me an opportunity to really question the world that I live in and my part in it. So I was constantly fine-tuning what living authentically meant for me. Mm. And in that, again, being driven, I've tried so many different things you know, my resume is nice and colourful and it was something that was really, really important to me for a very long time. But it ultimately showed me ways that I live authentically and ways that I live based on social expectations. Yeah. And society would tell me to work like a madman, to get a mortgage that I can't afford, to get a car that I can't afford, to have X amount of kids that I don't spend time with. Mm. And yeah, whereas I kind of decided, hey, let's just pull back from that. Let's prioritize quality time and family and love and let's make enough money that I can still have some toys, I can look after my family, but most importantly, it doesn't take me away from all that love and that quality time.
0: How do you spend your quality time? You mentioned family. What are the things that I know you've had a background in bouldering and rock climbing, didn't you?
1: I did. Not something I'm involved in too much now. My quality time, I love tinkering with things. I think um, if I had a couple of million dollars right now, I would get a woodworking apprenticeship and a mechanic apprenticeship. Yeah. Because for me, working with my hands is the the ultimate exciting thing. And it doesn't come to me naturally. Yeah. Every time I do a project, I, I get excited. I don't plan it. I break things. I start again. <laughs> so I think learning that patience would be something I'd love to do.
0: I can see how that experience lights you up, just yeah. as you describe it. For anyone that's watching the video, but anyone on the mm. audio is uh, is very happy yeah. <laughs> going through that. I think you should definitely pursue that. Yeah, it's about, I've had a couple of people come on in the past that had gone, for example, from being an engineer to a bodybuilder, and just taking that unique mm. perspective, you know, from one sort of demographic or industry to another. I think it'd be interesting from you going from using a lot of stuff with the mind, despite the fact that it's a huge focus on the body and Mm -hmm. how they experience emotions and thoughts, but applying that to something where you're just using exclusively your hands. Mm.
1: Yeah, it would be fascinating. (laughs) Again, for me, you know, uh, one of the biggest points of life is the pursuit of purpose and meaning. Yeah. And there can be existential purpose and meaning like family and career and all of that. And then there can be like moment-to-moment purpose, which is just creating something cool. Yeah. Like I've got my Jeep and I will sit there and I will fantasize on how I can make a certain modifications, then I'll research it, then I'll go and buy it, put it on and it's just yeah, I mean cloud nine from those experiences.
0: Yeah, interesting. See I've sort of I love that whole aspect of creating and if you like tinkering. So when you get people that come to you and they've got some pain points or something like that, it's like, all right, what can we do here? Do you wanna upgrade your body? Do you wanna be, you know, managing stress better, do you wanna do this? I look at people like to help them, but how we can make improvements that they choose that makes their life look like a 10 out of 10 for them. Whatever mm. there's not the way, not my map of the world, but what they actually ideally mm. want. And I love that. It's like my little thing. It's my. It's not my purpose, i call it, but it's definitely one of the things that light me up the most. And even these conversations, that'll be mm. another thing. So what is your purpose? What is yours, if you could articulate it for me?
1: I mean, my purpose is to live authentically. Yeah. And um, that's pretty vague. It but is. What's the
0: definition of authentic
1: well, it changes moment to moment. Yeah. You know, 5 years ago my purpose was to be a star in my own head in whatever that I pursued. Yeah. Um now my purpose is to downsize my professional life, yeah, focus on family, um focus on my relationship and at the same time have regular flow in my life. Yeah. So flow can be You know, I've gone back into the gym, something that I used to love passionately when I was in my teens and early 20s. And then I learned that it was too intertwined with my body dysmorphia. Mm -hmm. And I stopped exercising for a while, or at least I lost that drive. Yeah. And I think I spent a lot of time working through body image issues and accepting myself. And then now having come back into the gym, it's a joyous experience rather than, you know, when you, you know, when you train... And you look in the mirror, if you're having a good day, you look fantastic. And when you're having a bad day, you look awful. But in actual fact you look lighting as as well. (laughs) Yeah. But in actual fact, you look exactly the same. Yeah. So for me, there's been that real beautiful reconnecting with my body and the capacity to to kind of grow as well.
0: Yeah.
1: Um and again, little daily exercise, whether whether I'm present with my dog or whether I'm just going for a walk or we've relocated to Queensland, so I'm constantly immersed in nature all the time. This is my authenticity. So when I wake up in the morning, is there anything that isn't aligned with how I want to live my life? Mm. And if there isn't, what can I do to improve it?
0: It's a great question to ask yourself and I like the fact that you pointed out that your authenticity or who you are essentially mm. can change moment to moment. Mm. And you aren't like, well, I've chosen this, this is my profession, this is the way I have to live until I die. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think that is literally a death sentence, a contract they've signed forever. I've often said, I don't know who I'm going to be in six months' time. I'm doing things now. I'm really enjoying them. Don't know if I'll be still doing them then. Mm. And I even talk to the clients that I have, whether it be boxing or anyone that I'm coaching. My style and the methods that I use and my coaching techniques evolve over time based on experience with clients, based on things that I've learned. They're definitely going to evolve after this conversation that I've had with you. Mm. And it's consistently growing. And I love that. It's, mm. it's amazing. It's a very, uh, yeah, it's not set in stone.
1: It's a fundamental uh, thing that I sort of uh, give to my clients as well. We think of the psychedelic experience as something that changes you, right? Mm. So the first step of integration is curiosity about who you are as a consequence of that experience. We're going off the assumption that as a consequence of a trip, but then even taking it further as a consequence of every day that you've lived, something about you is different. Mm. If you bring expectations of who you were from the past into everyday moments, you're not living authentically and you're not acknowledging who you are in that moment. So I guess my philosophy is taking the knowledge from the psychedelic component and saying, who am I today? And then tomorrow waking up, who am I tomorrow? Because every day there's something different about me and if I don't embrace that or if I don't explore that, then I'm just stuck in a rut in some way.
0: Yeah. It's very interesting because that also translates to people in the fitness industry. They have a concept called Mm auto-regulation. Some days you just can't hit that PB. And people are like, you know what, I should be hitting the PB. There's no weight on the bar. But, you know, allostatic stress and all these other components that have come in, like you want to be meeting your potential, whatever that looks like, that particular day. But not every day is the same. And Mm -hmm. you are not the same every single day. Totally. How important is it for people in the helping relationships,
1: psychotherapists, whatever, for them to be doing the work themselves? I think if you don't do the work you shouldn't be a practitioner Yeah. so me as a therapist I think the reason I'm a good therapist is because I spent m- most of my training in a client chair seriously I, like, my, my therapy is informed by my life experiences and bringing myself authentically rather than any textbooks that I've read.
0: Lived experience is so important and there are so many people out there that have got the qualifications and obviously you've combined both. You've done the formal study and you mm-hmm. have the lived experience. So It gives you a very unique perspective and ability to connect with the people that you're trying to help. But so many people can understand the concept, they can make the quotes, they can list the stats, they can mm-hmm. do all these things but they really can't connect with the person because they don't have that lived experience and they don't have that credibility mm-hmm. because they can't link it with other understanding
1: yeah look my outtake is that i can't take you somewhere i haven't been myself yeah so i simply don't work with certain people if i haven't had experiences that i can connect to them in some way
0: i love that yeah it's interesting as um I would never ask anyone to do something that I would never do myself or have an experience in some way, shape or form mm. for the same reasons. I can't mm. expect – like if there's certain things that I'm not doing, I can't expect someone else to do it.
1: Yeah. Well, I, and just – it causes tension within you because you're faking it. So then you're not really doing the right thing by the client by pretending to know something you don't. Yeah. Yeah.
0: We have run out of time, Yuri, and there's a lot more that I would have liked to have discussed. We Mm. wanted to talk about integration and prep and everything with that psychedelic experience. Mm. Sure, we'll go down the rabbit hole with many other things. Would love to have you back if you're open to it. Absolutely. Yeah, Fantastic. enjoyed the chat. So did I. Just so that people can reach you, can you just put your details out there if
1: they want to look you up? Sure. Easiest thing is to find me on my website, innerfocustherapy.com.au. Perfect. Thank you very much, Yuri. Everyone,
0: we will be back next week. Look forward to speaking to you then. See you. Hello, I'm Con.
1: And I'm Steve. And, and we're we Eddie Nucky.
0: You're listening to
1: Radio Caram.
0: If you're down Caramway,
1: just, just call Mitchell Tall.
0: Or in Patterson Lakes, just call Mitchell Tall.
1: Anywhere Bayside,
0: just call Mitchell Tall. Buy, buy a cellar house.
1: Just Just call Mitchell Tall, Mitchell Tall, Tall, Real estate, ooh yeah, little real real estate.
0: estate. We want (laughs) more.